0: Good morning, Fellowship family and friends. Thanks for joining me today for the Sunday morning message. I'm so glad that you did. Uh, So after four messages, we have finally finished chapter one, and now we're off and running into chapter two. Running might be a bit of a strong word. Uh, You'll see I'm going to take seven messages to work through chapters two and three in the book of Revelation. Uh, seems fitting that will be one message for each of the seven churches that Jesus is addressing in these two chapters. And there are two questions that I hope that we will be asking, or I'll make sure, I guess, that we're asking through the next seven messages uh, as we look at these letters to the churches. The first question I want us to always be considering is: What is the will of Jesus for His church? What is the will? Of jesus for his church both past when this book of revelation was written when the revelation was first given to john and, and then to the immediate audience but also for today what is the will of jesus for his church and then the second question that i want us to consider is what characteristics set the church apart from all other organizations and movements how is a church different from other organizations that you or I could be a part of in the community? How is it different from other movements, from even very good movements, good social movements or good political movements or things that we would see as being valuable? How does the church stand apart from those things? And so we'll be coming back to those questions time and time again. This morning, we're going to consider the letter to the church in ephesus and so let's just begin by reading that passage together as always i want to encourage you to be looking at your own copy of god's word Uh, but i will put the passages on the screen and you'll be able to see them uh, as well but let's look at revelation chapter 2 and we're starting with verse 1. to the angel of the church in ephesus write which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of our God. Well, let me start by giving you some background. Some background on this city of Ephesus in biblical times. I think, I think it's important for us to see the environment that the Christians in Ephesus were living in, the followers of Jesus as they lived their everyday lives like you and I do, right? Not, not every moment is a church gathering. We, we work, we have families, we're in a community, and, and so were they. And so I think it's important for us to see this. Uh, the first thing I want you to know is that Ephesus was the capital city of Asia Minor. It was the capital, and so it was dominant among the seven cities that composed the original audience of Revelation. Of of all seven of these letters that we're going to look at and written to all seven of the churches in these different cities, Ephesus is the dominant city. It was wealthy. It was a cosmopolitan trade city. Historians estimate that during this time when John sent out the Revelation, there were about a quarter of a million people living in Ephesus. That's pretty big by ancient standards, a quarter of a million citizens in Ephesus. Not only did it have great political power, not only did it have great economic power, but Rome... Rome, the capital of the empire, also favored Ephesus uh, for the imperial cult. Now that might be a new phrase for you, so let me let me explain what that is. The imperial cult was the worship of the emperor, and this was very common throughout the empire. It was It was mandated throughout the empire that you Rome had this, and we probably all learned about this in history class when we were younger. Pax Romana this idea of Roman peace. They, they wanted peace throughout their empire. And so often they would let people worship their own gods, but they were also required to worship the emperor. And so the imperial cult was something that was really big in Ephesus, and, and Rome endorsed that. Um, Rome uh, gave it the honor. Uh, emperor Augustus specifically permitted Ephesus to build two temples in his honor. How gracious of him. (laughs) Ephesus, you can go ahead and build two temples in my honor. Uh, What what a great guy. And and then uh, also Domitian, another Roman emperor, uh, had called Ephesus the guardian of the imperial cult. And so uh, Ephesus was a very popular, very large, very powerful, very prosperous city that also... Uh, was dedicated to these false religions. Uh, In addition to the imperial cult, it was the center of worship for Artemis. Now, maybe you'll remember this back from Greek mythology class, uh, but uh, Artemis was uh, one of the uh, Greek goddesses in the Greek pantheon. To the Romans, she was called Diana. Uh, of course, we know all of this, right, from secular history. And, and we know this from uh, learning all of this growing up in school and reading about Greek and Roman mythology and in the history books and all those things. But we as Christ followers, as Christians, also know this from our study of the book of Acts, don't we? Well, maybe if you're a little fuzzy on that, let me just remind you of some of the details. Acts chapter 19 is where you want to go and i would encourage you as a homework assignment take a look at this chapter read through it's a very interesting chapter in our early church history and we see in acts 19 that ephesus the city we're talking about who this letter was written to ephesus had a temple that was dedicated to artemis let me just show you this verse acts 19 and verse 35 And and here, the Apostle Paul, right, uh, is in Ephesus. and, And here in Acts 19.35, we see it written, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? And so right from the pages of Scripture, we see that Ephesus had dedicated itself to the worship of Artemis. However, when you read Acts 19, you also see the advancement of the church. You see the advancement of this new religion called Christianity. And as the apostle Paul comes into Ephesus in Acts 19 and begins to preach the gospel, and, and God was moving in Ephesus and throughout this roman province in very powerful ways god did incredible incredible miracles through the apostle paul in ephesus just one example a a piece of cloth that had touched paul was taken to a sick person and again you can read all about this in acts 19 But this piece of cloth had only touched Paul and was taken to a sick person and they were healed. Or it was taken to a demon-possessed person and they were set free from the demonic possession. You know, it really was the fulfillment of what Jesus had said during his ministry. You see, Christ had promised his disciples that they would do even greater works than he had done. And so, just like Peter, do you remember in Acts, do you remember in Acts where it says that when Peter's shadow fell on the sick, that they were healed? Here we see the same type of thing happening. God was doing similar miracles in Ephesus through Paul. Can you imagine? I mean, church, just think about this with me. Can you imagine witnessing that kind of power? and the apostle Paul spends significant time in Ephesus. He, he spends the chapter tells us at least 2 years there preaching the gospel, making disciples, planting churches, doing the work of the ministry. Paul is there in the city preaching, discipling, church planning. And the church grows strong. The church in Ephesus becomes a powerful church what made them strong why was the ephesian church so strong we're going to see the answer very clearly given to us here in the chapter we're studying today revelation chapter 2 the answer is that love love made them strong when john sends the revelation. Out to the seven cities, the church in Ephesus is approximately 30 years old. It had been 30 years from the time when Paul arrived in Ephesus and started preaching the gospel, making disciples, making disciples that made disciples, which I'll remind you is the biblical model, planting churches, doing the work of the mystery. It had been 30 years since now John is now sending out the revelation to this church. In Revelation chapter 2, let's examine this. And I I want to just walk you through this verse by verse because I think there's so much that we need to see here. To the angel of the church in Ephesus right? this is Jesus talking, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What is Jesus saying here? Well, first of all, he identifies himself using two of the images that he used to describe himself or, or was used about him in chapter 1. He takes two of those images from the first chapter. Well, how does he describe himself in this verse? He says, I'm the one who holds the seven stars in my right hand. And, and he is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And we know that from our study of chapter 1, chapter 1, and specifically look back at verse 20, that this is imagery. Stars are symbolic for angels. Verse 20 in chapter 1 says it very clearly. There's no mystery here for us anymore. Stars are symbolic for angels. Lamp stands is symbolism for churches. And it is to the angel of the church of Ephesus that the letter is addressed but the message is to the congregation jesus is addressing the angel but the message of the letter is specifically for the people of this church scattered throughout the city and what does jesus say to the church in ephesus let's look through continue studying through the letter together jesus says i know your works your toil and your patient endurance And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Don't miss that Jesus, first of all, affirms them. He commends them. Jesus sees the good that this church is doing. It's 30 years old. It's been 30 years since Paul was there, and they've grown stronger because of their love for each other. And in, in the early days, and, and he sees the good that they've done through those years. He sees their works. He sees their, I think verse 2 would say, their perseverance in the faith. In the midst of this politically powerful, this economically uh, strong capital city, it's prosperous economically, he sees a church that is staying faithful in the midst of all of those temptations that accompany prosperity. We do know that, right? We do know that there are temptations that come with prosperity. There are temptations that come with success. And here these Christians are living in this powerful, prosperous city, and they've stood strong in the face of those temptations, in in the midst of a culture that has been consumed with worshiping the emperor, two temples to the emperor, Augustus, In, in the midst of a culture that is consumed with worshiping a false Greek and Roman goddess, Artemis, the Ephesian Christians stayed the course. The Ephesian Christians stayed strong. And Jesus commends them for their resolve. I don't, I don't want to miss this. And in light of everything else we're about to talk about, what Christ says next, let's not miss that Jesus commends them for what they're doing right. And he continues this affirmation in verse 3. If we look at verse 3 together, he says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown Weary. Just real quick, glance back at verse 2. It would seem that one of the battles that they have had to confront was false teaching. Now, false teaching in any church shouldn't be a surprise, and false teaching back in the church of Ephesus should not be a surprise. The, the reason I say it shouldn't be a surprise is so much of the New Testament is consumed where Paul or John or the other New Testament writers are, are writing in order for the church to stay strong against false teachers and against false teaching. So it's something that we should expect that we're going to have to fight against. Elders of the church should expect that they're going to have to stand strong and defend the church against false teachers. And, And certainly in Ephesus, it shouldn't be surprising. And let me show you why. If we go back to Acts chapter 20, right after Acts 19, Acts chapter 20, Paul is speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus, and this is what he says. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul knows he's leaving this church. He can't stay there any longer. He has to keep traveling. The missionary journeys have to continue. And he gives them this warning. He says, I know that when I leave, false teaching is going to enter in because I'm not going to be here to defend you against it. And so I think we can safely assume that in the decades between Paul's ministry in Ephesus, And the writing of the Revelation, that the elders of this church had to confront false teachers and to work hard to keep the theology of the church pure. And church, let me just say this again. This is essential. This is essential for all elders of every Christian church to do. This is what good elders do. They protect the church against false teaching. Elders, pastors, the words are interchangeable in the New Testament. An elder pastor, his role is to protect the church against false teaching. And these elders in Ephesus had done their job well. Jesus commends them for their discernment. However... Jesus did not only have words of affirmation for this church. There's more to come in the letter. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. The Greek word here is me." It's the Greek verb that's translated into the English word that you see abandoned. Offend me is translated abandoned. The, the idea behind this verb is to move away from something. To separate. To leave. To depart. As I'm moving away from the pulpit right now. I'm abandoning the pulpit. I'm leaving it. I'm departing from it. And, and this is what Jesus says here. You've abandoned. You've left the love that you had at first. Jesus uses this verb. I'll just show you one other time in Scripture, uh, in the Gospels, in Mark chapter 7 and verse 8, where he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, you offend me, you leave, you abandon the commandment of God in order to hold to the tradition of men. You've abandoned what God says in order to embrace your own rules, your own ideas, your own traditions. You've left behind, you've separated yourself from the very word of God in order to embrace what you believe is best and true. And this is the same verb that Jesus now uses in his address to the church in Ephesus, you've abandoned the love that you had at first. So church, it would seem that Jesus is saying here to the church in Ephesus that they had left or departed from their first love. And so the church of Ephesus was commended by Jesus for their perseverance in the faith. They were commended for their theological discernment. But Jesus confronts them on what they had lost. And what had they lost? Love. Love for who? You know, this is a very debated question. Is Jesus saying here, I think this is important for us to unpack this, is Jesus saying that the, the Ephesian Christians had abandoned their love for God? Or is he saying that the Ephesian Christians have abandoned their love For each other. Well, here's what I've found in my study of Revelation chapter 2. I have found Bible scholars that argue for both of these. I have found that some Bible scholars say, well, what Jesus is saying here is that the Ephesian Christians have abandoned their love for God and that they needed to return to their first love, their love for Christ. And I found other Bible scholars who argue that, no, no, what the Ephesian Christians have done is they've abandoned their love for each other. Well, here's what I, as your pastor, am going to do. I'm not going to pick a side. And here's why. I don't think I need to pick a side here. I think that this is one of those times where the right answer is not either this or that, but it's both and. You see, it's not that they had abandoned their love for God or their love for each other. I really think what Jesus is saying here is they've just abandoned love. Love for God and man. Why do I think that? Well, I think that because Jesus tied those two together. Loving God and loving people. It seems that Christ put those together so often. Let me just show you one example. Do you remember this story? I know that you do. Teacher... Which is the great commandment in the law? Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love your Lord, your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Don't miss this. This individual had come to Christ to test him and to say, I want you to tell me what, what the greatest commandment is. Jesus not only answers that question, but he puts in the second greatest commandment. Why? Because he's tying these together. Love God, love people. It's not either this or that, it's both this and that. Love God and love people, they're two sides of the same coin, if you will. They're both absolutely essential. I don't think Jesus wants us to pick one over the other. Why? Because we get off track when we do that. There's a great danger, and we've seen this throughout our history, friends, in the church, A great danger is that we will choose one over the other. We choose to love God. And so we're all about great worship music. And we're all about theological accuracy. And we're all about Bible studies. And we're all about preaching and great sermons. And and all of these things are good. They're good things. But sometimes people who are all about those things, loving God, are the same people that ignore the real needs of people, of people who are hurting the poor, the sick, the addicts, the prisoners. And Jesus would say to us, it's through loving God, the least of these, that you show your love for me. Do you you want to love God? Then love him. Love the homeless guy on the street. Love her. Love the the lady who's addicted to heroin and can't seem to kick it. Love the, the single mom who's doing everything she can to raise her kids but needs more support. Jesus would say, you want to love God? You want to love me? Love the least of these. Love those who are hurting. Well, let me flip that coin because it's not fair I just pick on one group. I Let me pick on both sides. Or we might choose to love people. And so many of us have fallen into this trap too. I would say especially in recent church history, we, we choose to love people. And, and so we're all about benevolence ministries, aren't we? We're all about Clothing closets and giving food away. And, and, we're, and, and a lot of us are all about social justice work and, and reforming society, society and fighting against systemic evil. And, and you've heard some of that come from my lips, certainly. Uh, we're all about fighting, uh, fighting against these evils in the culture and, and we're about mentoring children and we want to fight against human trafficking and we want to care for the orphans and the widows and the refugees, and all of that is so good. It's exactly what God wants us to do. But if we ignore the living God, if we live as though he is not the author and the main character of this great story that's being written, Jesus would come to us and say, abide in me. He would say, remain in me, remain in my love. Because I'm at the very center of everything that's happening in history. And if you only love people, but you don't love me, you're missing it. So church, I would say to you that we need to love God and we need to love people both together. The Ephesian church was doing a lot right, but they had abandoned love. Love for God and love for others. And so what should they do? How does Jesus instruct instruct them here? I think this is really important. Look at verse 5 with me. Going back to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5, Jesus says, Remember, remember therefore where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Don't miss this. The Ephesian Christians knew how to love God, and they knew how to love each other. They just needed to remember it. That's what Jesus says to them in this verse. You need to remember how to love, and, and then you need to repent, and you need to return to how you loved at first. Repentance is an important word in the New Testament. It comes from the Greek word metanoia. And I just want you to to make sure that you know this. Metanoia means a changing of the mind. It's when my mind is changed about my sin. When I begin to think differently about my sin. Repentance is when I turn from my sin and I turn to God. And church, this is God's will for us. Let me just very quickly walk you through a short doctrinal statement on repentance here. Uh, Peter wrote, "The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's God's will for us church. Uh, Jesus said this this was his very mission on earth he said i have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance and jesus talked about the party that happens every time a lost sinner repents he says just so i tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance i believe That scripture teaches us that even our desire for repentance is God's work in us. And, And the Apostle Paul talks about this to the Romans when he writes and says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The kindness of God is a catalyst to turn people from their sin and to him. The kindness of God at work in our lives drives us to repent, remember, and repent. Repentance is central to conversion in the gospel, and it's it's tied to the idea of faith. And again, sometimes this is another example of where it's not an either-or. It's not faith or repentance. It's faith and repentance it's exactly what we see here in this verse in acts chapter 20. the apostle paul's preaching the gospel to who oh guess what the ephesians (laughs) the same group of people right and paul is here preaching to the ephesians and he says to them and he testifies both to jews and to greeks of repentance toward god and of faith in our lord jesus christ repentance and faith Do you see how the gospel message is described here this is so important when we're sharing the gospel with our family and friends and neighbors and co-workers the gospel message is a message of faith and repentance faith or belief in jesus of trusting in him alone and all that he has accomplished for us through his death on the cross, and repentance, turning from our sin and turning toward God. Both are absolutely essential to the gospel message. But church, it's not just the lost who need to repent. You see, we know this from what we're studying in Revelation 2. Sometimes the found need to repent. Sometimes those who are already in the kingdom, they've already trusted in Christ. They are followers of Christ, but they have lost their way and now they need to remember and repent. And in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is telling the church in Ephesus to remember the way they used to love. Remember how you used to love God. Remember how you used to love each other, how you used to love people. Turn away from your sinfulness and turn back to God. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, is what Christ says. Repent and do the works you did at first. But what if they don't? What if they don't? Jesus says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. What is Jesus saying? when he says to them that he's going to remove their lampstand. I think it's important we understand this. I think it's important that we at Fellowship Baptist Church understand this. I don't believe that this means that those who have truly trusted in Christ for their salvation, I don't believe that it means they're going to lose their salvation. I just can't see that in my study of the New Testament. Do you remember the passage from John's Gospel that I ended with last Sunday? Let me just remind you of it quickly. Here Christ says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I don't think that what Jesus is saying here to the Ephesian Christians Is that if you don't repent, I'm going to come and I'm going to take your salvation away. However, it would seem, it would seem, church, that it's possible for a church to cease being a church. It would seem that what Christ is saying here is that I'm going to come and take your lampstand and you will no longer be my church. You might continue to be many other things. But the promise that Jesus is making here implies that unless they turn back to loving like they did at first, they will no longer be his church. Well, Jesus has one more commendation for them in verse 6. We're coming towards the end here. And in verse 6, he says, Yet this you have, one more word of commendation. He says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, who are the Nicolaitans? Boy, I tried to find out for you. I really did. And I found some theories. I I did. I found some theories. But to me, there was no clear answer here. Who this group in Ephesus was, or, or exactly what they taught or what they did, that Jesus would say that he hated their works. I mean, it's strong wording from Christ. He says, I hate the works of the nicolaitans but what we do know is that jesus says he hates their works here and he commends the church of ephesus for doing the same so even though we may not know exactly who they are or what they believed or what they were doing i think there's something really important for us to see here let this be a reminder to us church that in the age of tolerance, which we currently live, you and I, in our setting in 2020, in this age of tolerance, that there are indeed many things that God hates. God hates sexual immorality. The book of Malachi tells us God hates divorce. God hates gossip and slander. He hates apathy. Injustice, pride, our greed, our arrogance. And when we find ourselves caught up in these things, brothers and sisters, may we hear the word of Christ to us and for us. When he says, remember, remember therefore where you have fallen. Repent, repent, change your mind about your sin. Turn from your sin, brother, sister Christian. Turn from your sin. Even those of you who are saved, you've been in the church for decades. You've been walking with me, but now you've fallen into pride. Now you've fallen into apathy. Uh, You don't care at all about the poor of your community. You've fallen into greed. What's in it for me? How can I get more? And you've fallen into all of these areas of sin that God would say he hates. And Jesus' words to us would be, remember and repent. Do the things that you did at first. Then if we look at verse 7, we see that Jesus makes a promise to the church in Ephesus. And I think also to us as well. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. What is the promise? What is the reward for conquering that Christ gives here? He says to eat from the tree of life in paradise, to have eternal life. This is the tree from the Garden of Eden. This is the tree from the earliest chapters of the Bible, from our sacred text, and also from the last chapter, from the final chapter. Uh, Read Revelation chapter 22. It's going to be a year or so before I get there, so don't wait for me. Read chapter 22 from the book of Revelation, and you'll find the tree of life is once again a part of God's story. It was back in the garden, and it's once again a part of the story now. Now, how might Fellowship Baptist apply this letter to the Church of Ephesus? Let's end with a little bit of application. Let's think through this together. How should we apply this letter? Do you remember the two questions that we should be asking as we look at the letters to the churches, and and we'll be doing this throughout the next several weeks. But what were those two questions again? First of all, what is the will of Jesus for his church? That's question number one. (laughs) And then question number two is what characteristics set the church apart from all other organizations and movements? Here is what I hope that you and I will take away from our passage this morning. The will of Jesus Christ for his church is love. The will of Jesus for his church is loving God and loving people. Loving Jesus and loving each other. This is the will of Jesus. This is what sets us apart from other organizations and movements. The church is called to radical love. He wants us to be characterized by love. And so here's really the question we need to end with this morning. Does Fellowship Baptist Church love God and love people? Well, it's been our tagline for a lot of years. Love God, love people. But do we really do it? Do we really love God and do we love others? We're nothing without love. We are nothing without loving God and loving others. So, so let's get real for a moment. If Jesus wrote a letter specifically to us, to Fellowship Baptist in East China, what would he say? What would the letter say about this characteristic of the church that was obviously so important to him? But would he say the same things to us as he said to the church of, of Ephesus? Would he say, remember... Repent, return, fellowship you need to love like you used to. If that's what he would write to us, then my prayer is that we would have an ear to hear. Church, my prayer is that if Christ would write that to us, that we would have hearts that would be open and that we would be ready to listen to our Lord. And so I pray, I pray that we have theological discernment here at Fellowship. I I pray that we have that same degree of theological discernment that Ephesus did. Uh, May we be quick to spot false teaching. Might we be quick to stand up against it. But Fellowship, may we always love may we love may we love god and may we love each other because without love we are absolutely nothing without love we are absolutely nothing i mean isn't that what the apostle paul said in in first corinthians chapter 13 he's speaking of himself here, but I think we can apply this to us as a church as well. He said, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And then the word of God, Paul goes on and he defines and describes love for us in this beautiful passage that my prayer is that this would characterize us as a church in the years to come. Paul says, love is patient Blessings to you, church. Have a wonderful week. My prayer for you is that you stay healthy. You stay strong. I am praying for you. I cannot wait until we can gather again in person. But in the meanwhile, let's love. Let's love God passionately. Let's love each other. Be quick to encourage each other. Pick up the phone. Call one of your brothers and sisters here in the congregation. Express your love and encouragement to them. We need each other through this time. Might it be true of us that we are a church that prioritizes and knows how to love. Have a wonderful day. God bless you.